Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Just a quick reminder that new episodes are out on the 15th and the 30th of each month with occasional bonus episodes. So be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss one. This continues our series of Based on a True Story movies and the true crime cases behind them. Let me tell you that doing research for these movies for my podcast has become a little rabbit hole of its own. While I was researching for this episode, I found another movie, on this case, that I had never heard of. Turned out to be really good and well worth the time and worth featuring. I have found many other movies while researching the cases, so I have a long list to cover and to use as bonus movie names for you. Okay, on with this episode. A firing squad for an execution is normally composed of several gunmen, all of whom are usually instructed to fire simultaneously, thus preventing identification of the member who fired the lethal shot. To avoid disfigurement due to multiple shots to the head, the shooters are typically instructed to aim at the heart. Gary Gilmore was executed on January 17, 1977, at 8.07 a.m. by a firing squad at Utah State Prison. The execution took place in an abandoned cannery behind the prison. Gilmore was strapped to a chair with a wall of sandbags placed behind him to trap the bullets. Five gunmen, local police officers, stood concealed behind a curtain with five small holes, through which they aimed their rifles. When asked for any last words, Gilmore simply replied, Let's do it. The Roman Catholic prison chaplain administered the last rites to Gilmore. After the prison physician cloaked him in a black hood, Gilmore uttered his last words to the priest in Latin, saying, The Lord be with you. Mearsman replied, And with your spirit. In Utah, firing squads consisted of five volunteer law enforcement officers, from the county in which the conviction of the offender took place. The five executioners were equipped with 30-30 caliber rifles and off-the-shelf Winchester 150-grain silver-tip ammunition. The condemned was restrained and hooded, and the shots were fired at a distance of 20 feet, aiming at the chest. Prison officials stated that the firing squad comprised of four men with live rounds and one with a blank, so that the shooters could not be certain as to who fired the fatal shots. Gilmore had requested that some of his organs be donated for transplant purposes. Within hours of the execution, two people received his corneas. His body was sent for autopsy and was cremated later that day. The following day, his ashes were scattered from an airplane over Spanish Fork, Utah. The two movies we are covering today are Executioner's Song and Shot in the Heart. Executioner's Song, this one goes back all the way to 1982, but it was well done and really holds up well. Even so, I bet this one will get a remake eventually. The Executioner's Song 1982 movie stars Tommy Lee Jones, Christine Lahey, Rosanna Arquette, and Jim Youngs. It is based on the book The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. The IMDB description reads as follows. The story of Gary Gilmore, a convicted murderer who lobbied for his own execution. We'll start with the movie and then go over Gilmore's life and crimes. Gary Gilmore is released from prison in 1976 and is paroled to his cousin Brenda in Utah. 
He at first gets a job with his uncle repairing boots, but he doesn't do well at this. He finds frustration in dating as he is too eager to get a woman in bed and not to just date. He then gets a job at an insulation factory and his boss helps him get a used car so he doesn't have to walk the seven miles or hitch a ride to get to work. He meets a young woman, Nicole Baker, who is only 19 and has two kids. He becomes completely besotted with her. Gary is 35, having spent more than half of his life in incarceration. Both he and Nicole have had hard backgrounds. She was raped by her uncle, a family friend, not a blood uncle, and Gary had been in reform school where rapes took place on teenage boys as well as other abuses. Upon meeting Nicole, Gary's cousin Brenda refers to her as a welfare witch. Nicole has been married twice and is only 19. She tells Gary how she was in a mental institution at 11 because of the man she referred to as uncle. Gary tells her some of the horror stories from reform school and prison. They bond over these things, and there is an intense chemistry. They are truly obsessed with each other. Things get complicated for Gary with money and his car breaking down. He does some illegal things that could land him back in prison, and those things don't go very well. He is stressed, and Gary ends up hitting Nicole during an argument. Nicole takes her kids and hides away from Gary. Things start to spiral at this point, and when Gary finds he can't get Nicole back, he spirals all the way out of control. He robs a gas station and kills a man that works there. Then he goes on to kill the front desk guy at a motel. He doesn't get much money in either robbery, and it is very unclear why he killed the man. One man smiled at him when he told him to get on the ground. Was that it? Or was it really just for the money? He had to know it wouldn't be that much. It's all unclear and very sad. Gary goes to jail while facing trial, and Nicole breaks down and goes to see him. He gives her a letter to take home and read. She reads it and is deeply touched. She writes him and goes to see him every chance she can. Their intense relationship is back to obsession. He is sentenced to death and moves to prison. Nicole continues to see him. His attorney appeals the death sentence, and Gilmore goes to court to tell the judge he does not want to appeal, that he wants to die, as was already said. The next time he sees Nicole, they talk about doing a suicide pact. She smuggles pills into him, and they both take them on the night agreed. Neither dies. Gary is taken to a regular prison hospital and is okay. Nicole goes to a mental hospital in an effort to protect her from Gilmore so that he cannot convince her to try again. In the meantime, different people are trying to talk Gary into selling the rights to his story to make a movie about it. Offers come in with the most money to Gilmore and some to Nicole for the story. Gary tells his little brother Michael how, when he first went to juvenile hall, he was held down by two boys and raped. Two years later, he was one of the boys holding down the new boy. He tells him he has lived like this for too long and there is nothing left. He wants to die. He becomes a famous convict mainly because he is pressing for the right to die by the sentence that was given to him without appeal. He is on the news, in paper, and magazines. There is another movie about Gary Gilmore, a more recent one, and this one is based on the book by Gary's brother, Shot in the Heart by Michael Gilmore. Michael is spelled M-I-K-A-L. Shot in the Heart, 2001 movie starring Giovanni Ribisi, Elias Cotis, and Lee Turgenson. The story of a man coming to terms with the sins and secrets of his notorious brother, and in the process exploring the legacy of violence in his own family.
This movie goes back into Gary Gilmore's childhood, as well as the times of execution. Michael wasn't around for Gary's childhood, as Michael was the youngest of the brothers, and he was just a kid when Gary was a teenager. While they are in Utah visiting Gary, Frank Jr. tells Michael all about their childhood before he was around, and Gary fills him in on some of it as well. The movie starts with the scene of Gary Gilmore's mother at age 11. She and her siblings are using a Ouija board, even though their parents have told them a Ouija board is evil. They get a message from a spirit. The spirit tells them he is a dead Indian. When their parents find out what they have done, they tell the kids how wrong it is and break the board in half. Their mother tells them there was a white horse in the yard the previous night, and that is a sign that someone will die. The mother relates this sighting to them playing with the Ouija board. The next day, one of their sisters dies in a tragic accident. After that day, Gary's mother was sure the ghost was haunting them all and would continue to haunt her family. In 1976, the Supreme Court lifted its moratorium on the death penalty. That same year, Gary Gilmore murdered two men in Utah and was sentenced to die. He ordered his lawyers not to appeal. He was the first in 10 years to be scheduled to be executed. Only a member of the Gilmore family could seek a stay of execution. Gary's brothers, Michael and Frank Jr., went to Utah to decide whether or not to intervene. Michael was a writer and the writer of the book the movie is based on. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for the brothers. They were being encouraged to sign papers to get a stay of execution. At the same time, that went against their brother's wishes. Frank Jr. left Michael with it. Michael barely knew Gary. There was a big age difference, and Gary had been in prison for much of his life. In one scene, their mother is talking to Michael on the phone, and she says, Can you imagine what it feels like to be the mother of a son who you love, who deprived two other mothers of their sons? And we have to remember that through all the hoopla about having the first execution in 10 years and the way it was done through firing squad is that two men were killed for no reason. They were seemingly random and as much as any murder doesn't make sense, these really didn't. Over the course of a week, Gary and Michael talk during his allotted prison visits. They talk about their childhood, about how their father was violent with all of them, but not so much Michael, the youngest one. He would take straps to the other boys, and Gary was the one who fought him the hardest, so he got the worst of it. They talk about the bad marriage their parents had, fights over the dinner table with Frank Jr. getting his face smashed into the plate of food by his father, and their mother throwing the turkey on the floor. They talk about the bad times for Gary each time he was incarcerated, starting with reform school, how bad it was and how much it made him worse with each horrible thing that happened to him while incarcerated. Gary Mark Gilmore was born on December 4, 1940. His birth certificate read Faye Robert Kaufman because his father was using an alias while he was in Texas running from the law. His mother didn't like the name, so when they changed his last name to the real one of Gilmore, they also changed the first and middle name. Gary was the second of four sons, Frank Jr., Gary, Galen, and Michael. Frank Sr. was born in 1890, so he was already 50 years old when Gary was born. He was an alcoholic and a con man who had other wives and families that he didn't support. Gary's mom, Bessie, was born in 1913, so she would have been 27 when she had Gary. During Gary's childhood, the family frequently relocated through the western United States, with Frank supporting them by selling fake magazine subscriptions. Youngest brother Michael described Frank Sr. as a cruel and unreasonable man. 
Frank Gilmore Sr. was strict and had a quick temper. Often he would hit the boys with a razor strap or belt for no reason. Michael reported that Frank did mellow with age and had only whipped him once, and never did it again after Michael told him, I hate you. Gary's cousin Brenda was interviewed, saying that their father would beat them for no reason and even sometimes would hide behind the door when they came in the house and then attack them. It was agreed that Gary got the worst of it. In addition, Frank and Bessie would argue loudly and verbally abuse each other. They would use their religions against each other when arguing. Frank would anger Bessie by calling her crazy and defame Brigham Young, the second president and prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as Brigham Young. Bessie would retaliate by calling him a catlicker, Catholic, and threatening to kill him some night. This abuse continued for years and caused considerable turmoil within the Gilmore family. Gary was eight when his mother insisted they make a real home in Portland, Oregon. His father started a legitimate publication called the Building Code Digest. Thankfully, this took Frank Sr. away from home more. Michael was born in 1951 when Gary was 11. As an adolescent, Gary began engaging in petty crime. They had moved to Salt Lake City and only stayed a year, but it was enough time for Gary to meet some friends that would be trouble. They introduced him to cigarettes, alcohol, and shoplifting. The family moved back to Oregon where Gary played hooky and got drunk, and he was still in grade school. Although Gilmore had an IQ test score of 133, gained high scores on both aptitude and achievement tests, and showed artistic talent, he dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. He ran away with a friend and hitchhiked to Texas, returning to Portland after several months. At the age of 14, Gary started a small car theft ring with friends, which resulted in his first arrest in May of 1955. He was released to his father with a warning. Two weeks later, he was back in court on another car theft charge. The court remanded him to the McLaren Reform School for Boys in Woodburn, Oregon, where he had to stay for 15 months. Treatment there was bad, to say the least. Michael said in an interview that a common punishment was to be stripped of your clothes, put in a cage inside an attic room that had broken windows, and kept there two to three days, sometimes in the winter. He said many of the kids that this was done to would take bits of broken glass and carve tattoos in their hands. In 1959, Gary was arrested for statutory rape, and his father got the charges dropped but an old car theft charge somehow landed him in jail. This time he was sent to Oregon State Correctional Institution. The girl from whom the statutory rape charges Gary had been with gave birth in 1960, but Gary's parents told him the child had died. He would never find out that this was not true. Because of his birth certificate reading, Faye Robert Kaufman, Gary began to think his father wasn't really his father. Family members said this bothered him greatly. He was released from prison in 1961 and went to live with his parents in Portland. Just months later, he was back in prison, this time Rocky Butte Jail, because he was driving without a license and had an open bottle of liquor in the car. His father died while Gary was there, and he was devastated. He tried to kill himself using a broken light bulb to slash his wrist and destroyed what little he had in his cell. He was thrown into solitary confinement and was unable to go to the funeral. He got out not too long after that, but he got himself into more and more trouble. He was wilder after his father died and drank a lot more. 
1964, he was given a 15-year sentence for assault and armed robbery. The lengthy sentence was because he was deemed a habitual offender. He was sent to Oregon State Penitentiary. The prison psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder with intermittent psychotic decompensation. While in prison there, he attacked a dentist over improper dental care. He got other inmates to agree to a suicide pact in protest, where they all agreed to slit their wrists at the same time. Some came close to dying, but Gary did not. He was transferred to the psychiatric unit in 1970 and given an antipsychotic med called prolixin. There were awful side effects. At time, he said he was paralyzed, unable to move to even use the bathroom. There was also drooling and a shuffling to feet when he did walk. His mother pleaded with them to take Gary off of it, and they eventually did. In 1971, Gary's younger brother, Galen, died during surgery. He was just 27. Gary threw himself into his artwork after this. He even won awards and contests. In 1972, he was granted a conditional release to attend art school and live in a halfway house. Sadly, Gary didn't give himself the opportunity that was offered to him. He robbed a gas station at gunpoint. He was sent back to Oregon State Penitentiary. He was said to be increasingly more violent after this and had many run-ins with the prison guards. They decided to put him back on prolixin, but he begged for them not to. Instead, he was sent to Marion, Illinois, a maximum security federal penitentiary. He was writing his cousin Brenda regularly from there. He was paroled into her custody in April of 1976 in Provost, Utah. He went to work at his uncle's shoe repair shop. His uncle had to talk to him about the way he ogled and whistled at the women. He was 35, but immature in the ways of grown men and relationships, having spent virtually all of his adulthood behind bars. He met Nicole Barrett Baker and fell hard for her. Nicole said of this time, It was like the littlest things were meaningful. It was just like this person had just started living. We just started having a lot of fun together. Everything was new. Everything was an experience. Gary moved in with Nicole. Gary was like a teenager with his first love. Nicole was the 19-year-old mother of two and had been married and divorced three times. Gary's cousin Brenda worried that Nicole being so young would be a bad influence on Gary. Nicole said she felt it was his drinking that really messed him up. He was soon shoplifting beer and cigarettes. He even got a hold of some stolen guns. This is when Nicole says she got scared. She left him not too long after this. And that is when he fully spiraled out of control. On July 19, 1976, Gary drove to Orem, Utah, and parked his car down the block from the Sinclair gas station. Max Jensen, 24-year-old law student and father of a baby girl, was working that night. Gary had a stolen gun with him. He told Max to give him the money from his pocket and the coin changer belt he had on. He told Jensen to get in the bathroom and made him get on the floor. Gary said that he pulled the trigger for the first time, and he said out loud, This one is for me. Then when he pulled the trigger the second time, he said, This one is for Nicole. The next night, he dropped his truck off for repairs and then walked to the city center motel. Ben Bushnell was working that night. He was 25 years old and had a baby boy and a wife who was pregnant. Gary demanded the cash box from him. He shot Bushnell once in the head. Gary was disposing of the gun under a bush when it went off and the bullet went through his hand. He called his cousin Brenda to bring him bandages and painkillers. 
She called the police instead. At first, in an interview with police, Gary denied the killings. Then he admitted them and told Lieutenant Gerald Nielsen that he had read the obituaries and found out they were both young married fathers. He felt bad. He told Nielsen that he should die for that. Nielsen said he asked him if he wanted to die, and Gary said no. But he said, I should for that. He told him that he didn't know why he did it, but he did know that he should die for it. He told Nielsen he was afraid he might do it again. Gary went to trial and was sentenced to death. He did not wish to appeal the sentence. He not only thought he deserved to die, he preferred it to living out the rest of his life behind bars. He and Nicole wrote to each other, sometimes as many as three times a day. Nicole smuggled sleeping pills into jail when she went to visit him. She had sleeping pills at home for herself. They had agreed to take the pills at the same time, and they did. They both survived. All communication between the two was banned after that. Gary went on a hunger strike in protest. The media had been all over Gary's story after he was the first to be sentenced to death in 10 years, and then insisted it be carried out. But after the suicide pact, it went crazy. Through Gary's Uncle Vern, a deal was struck for the rights to his story. There were different people, different groups, trying to get a stay of execution. Gary asked them to all butt out. A new date was finally scheduled for execution, January 17, 1977. This is when Michael went out to talk to Gary. He had to decide if he was going to sign for a stay of execution. After talking to Gary, he decided to honor his brother's wishes and did not sign anything. But during the visits in which they got to talk, they got to know each other. Michael told Gary that he didn't know him and was scared of him. But after the visits, he got to know him, and he liked him. Gary was touched by this and glad that they had gotten the time together. The prison officials let Michael shake Gary's hand to say goodbye. The last few visits had been from behind glass, so both brothers really appreciated this. It was a tough goodbye. Michael said that he had come to the conclusion that Gary really did want to die. The life he had lived was hell. The life he was going to live was hell. That all he could do was let him find whatever kind of redemption he found and stand beside him. On January 16, 1977, at 6 p.m., over 300 media covering his execution were cordoned off in the prison parking lot. They were told they would have to stay there until after Gary's death the following morning. Protesters were demonstrating on the service road outside of the prison gate. One of their buttons read, Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? Gary was spending these last hours with friends and family. He was dancing. It was a little gathering. His Uncle Vern had smuggled in three mini bottles of whiskey for Gary to drink. Gary's attorney, Ron Stanger, got a call through to Gary's favorite musician, Johnny Cash, who sang a song to him. Who doesn't love the man in black? When the party was dying down, Gary made an audio recording for Nicole. He told her how much he loved her, but how much he wanted to be off this planet. He told her that he wanted to be free, but he wanted her too. Later that night, the American Civil Liberties Union managed to secure a last-minute stay of execution. A few hours later, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals had an emergency session in Denver, Colorado, and overturned that stay which allowed the execution to go forward. The next morning, Gary Gilmore was taken to the abandoned cannery behind the prison. He was loosely bound to a chair with padded nylon straps. He was facing a gray muslin curtain 20 feet away. There were five small openings for the rifles. 
A paper target was pinned over Gary's heart. He showed no fear of death. He joked to his uncle that they should arm Russell one last time. The warden asked him if he had anything else he wanted to say, and he said, Yeah, let's do it. A black hood was placed over Gary's head. In a press meeting after the execution, Gary's lawyer said that when he spoke with Gary in the wee hours of the morning, Gary expressed thanks for the many things that had happened to him, and he also expressed sorrow for the deeds that he did. Michael was with her mother at her house at the time of execution. Someone had brought them a newspaper that said the execution had been stayed. On the TV, it said the execution had gone forward. Nicole was still at the mental hospital from the suicide attempt. The doctor had come into her room to tell her that Gary had been shot. Most of Gary's organs were donated for transplant. His body was cremated and ashes spread over Spanish Fork, Utah, the small town in which he and Nicole had lived together. The $50,000 that was obtained for the sale of the rights for Gary's story for book and movies were divided among family members. Some of the money was given to the wives of the men Gary murdered. It was tragic. Gary's life was tragic, and Max Jensen and Ben Bushnell's early endings were tragic. Gary's father started the tragedy with all the abuse he heaped on his boys. The incarcerations, the acts of violence perpetrated in these incarcerations, furthered the tragedy. Two innocent men working hard to provide for their families lost their lives. It's all tragic. I recommend both movies. You can watch in either order, but I started with The Executioner's Song and then watched Shot in the Heart. Both good movies and excellent acting. The bonus movie name is Texas Killing Fields. The description of the movie is, In the Texas bayous, a local homicide detective teams up with a cop from New York City to investigate a series of unsolved murders. It's a 2011 movie starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Sam Worthington, Chloe Grace Moretz, and Jessica Chastain. Several killings occur along Houston's I-45 corridor between Houston and Galveston in and around an area known as the Killing Fields. The film's screenplay was loosely inspired by true events surrounding the murders of women kidnapped from cities spread along the 30-plus miles of the I-45 corridor and dumped in many areas, including various bayous surrounding the oil fields of Texas City, Texas. While in real life, there have been several itinerant serial killers involved over the years, the film focuses on specific local Texas City suspects. The Texas Killing Fields is an area bordering the Calder Oil Field, which is a 25-acre patch of land situated a mile from Interstate Highway 45. Since the early 1970s, 30 bodies of murdered victims have been found within the Killing Fields area. They were mainly the bodies of girls or young women. Furthermore, many young girls have disappeared from this area, and those girls' bodies are still missing. It is believed that many of the murders are the work of multiple serial killers. Most of the victims were aged 12 to 25. Despite efforts by the Leak City, Texas police, along with the assistance of the FBI, very few of these murders have been solved. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Texas Killing Fields location, this link has a long table of victims found in the Texas Killing Fields going back from 1971 to 2006. Girls as young as 12 all the way up to women aged 57. There are four suspects in the cases that are listed as well as two convictions. 
film adaptation of the deadly events that occurred along the I-45 highway was released on September 9, 2011, with the title Texas Killing Fields. The film is loosely based on the murders while depicting a fictional portrayal of the struggle that local police faced while attempting to solve the murders. A father of one of the girls that was murdered said that he saw the film for what the filmmakers intended, to raise awareness about the crimes and to generate new tips. In an interview with CBS News for 48 Hours, actor Sam Worthington said, People, you never know, might just go and see the movie and go, Oh, I remember when someone went down in the fields, and I remember a certain car, and a certain person seemed a bit dodgy. Maybe a family can then know what happened to their daughter. The movie is pretty good. It's excellent actors, and it really gives you a feel for the area.